0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Folklore. I'm Rachel Hopkin, one of the hosts of the channel, and today we'll be hearing from Gretchen Dykstra about Pinery Boys, songs and song-catching in the lumberjack era. Gretchen Dykstra, welcome to New Books in Folklore. Thanks, Rachel, and thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Gretchen, I wonder if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself because you don't have a, a long background as a folklorist, do you? (laughs)
1: <laughs> no I don't in fact uh i am not a folklorist um and which is makes it even more pleasant that i'm with you today because i'm sure i'll learn something um no I'm a new yorker and for many many years i worked in the civic and government arena um, and had my last job job back in i guess 2006 um. And when I left that job, I decided to try my hand at writing. So that's what brings me to you today.
0: Um, and but you have a very specific personal connection
1: to the subject of this book, right? Well, yes. Um, this, is a, this is a reissue of um, a minor classic in the world of American folklore, a book written by Franz Rickaby, who was my grandfather, but he died when my own father was only four. So I, of course, never knew Franz Rickaby. So in a sense, this, my section of this book was um, the story of my quest to find my grandfather,
0: so tell me a little bit about how this book came about.
1: Well, a little bit of background, I guess. Um, my, Franz Rickeby died in 1925 in Pomona, California. And my grandmother and my father um, stayed in California. But two years later, she met and married a man named Clarence Dykstra, and he adopted my father. So my father grew up with a very loving stepfather, um, and as I grew up, um, his stepfather in a sense became my grandfather. So Franz Rickaby, I don't wanna say he was lost because my grandmother um, obviously never forgot him, but uh, we didn't grow up knowing uh, my biological grandfather. But my grandmother had left a lot of material about him. And um, when I became a writer in residence at the New York Public Library, which happened, um, I began reading through those letters and became intrigued.
0: So tell us why uh, Franz Rickaby is of interest to those interested in folklore.
1: Franz Rickaby was uh, himself well, Rachel, I, I I think I need to give a little bit of background. Um, he he was born in 1894, no, sorry, 1889, and he he was born in uh, Rogers, Arkansas. He ended up going to college at Knox in Galesburg, Illinois, and he was majoring in English. Um, went off to Harvard on a scholarship with the Chicago Club. And he still was reading Chaucer and Shakespeare, which I think is probably one of the things that motivated his interest ultimately in folklore. He was obviously interested in in popular poets, if you will. and he got a job as one of two English professors at the University of North Dakota. And at that time, uh, the other English professor was somebody who came out of drama and the th- and the theater world and was very interested in the stories of real life people and worked to get his students at the university to understand that their lives were rich with meaning and profundity. They didn't have to write about things they didn't know anything about. They could write about their own lives. And that man had a great influence on Franz Rickabee, who, um, interestingly enough, had to supplement his income every summer by being a golf caddy in Michigan. Um, so that's a long way of saying that I think that Franz Rickaby ended up being a folklorist in part because of his interest in Chaucer and Shakespeare, in part because of his mentor at the University of North Dakota's being interested in the lives of ordinary people, and then he met a lumberjack in northern Michigan and began to hear the stories, and so it all became um, it it became one, and he decided in the summer of 1919 to walk from northern Michigan back to North Dakota, looking for the songs of the Lumberjacks. And that first walk started his collecting and um, was dramatic for lots of reasons, Um, in particular because he didn't find many songs. The lumber camps by that time were closing down. The industry was moving to the Pacific Northwest. And Franz Rickeby realized that there was richness in the songs to be collected, but the songs were disappearing fast. So he devoted the next four or five years to looking for the old timers, looking for the lumberjacks who might still remember the songs. And it took him all around the upper Midwest. Um, And because he had the sensibilities of a poet and a decent guy, Um, he not only collected the songs, but he also wrote very evocative notes um, that capture the lumber industry at that time, which I think gave the book uh, a richness that other books at that time did not have.
0: Right. He provided all this wonderful uh, contextual material, which is often missing from collections at that time. Often it's just the song or the text of the song and, and, that's it. Um, so he was uh, very forward thinking in that way. Um, before we go on, I just want to uh, talk a little bit about the structure of the book. So uh, on the front uh, cover, it says the book is by France Rickaby with Gretchen Dykstra and James P. Leary. So can you tell us a little bit about how the book is arranged?
1: Well, here I give the University of Wisconsin Press and Jim Leary a lot of credit for a creative idea. Um, uh, what happened was that as I was doing my research and I was traveling to North Dakota and I was going to see some of the towns that Franz Rickabee visited, um, I came across a paper that Jim Leary had written criticizing Franz Rickaby for whitewashing the vulgarities out of some of the songs he collected. And I was, I guess, still a protective granddaughter. And so I tracked down Jim Leary and I said, gee, do you think that's really true? You think my grandfather was a prig? Do you think he was uptight? And we had this very friendly, nice conversation. Jim uh, began to introduce me to the complexities of folklore and, um, folk song collection. And at the end of our conversation, Jim said to me, what are you going to do with what you're writing? And I said, oh, I don't know. I'm just, um, I'm doing it for my pleasure. And he said, well, the University of Wisconsin Press had just gotten the rights to reissue Franz Rickaby's book. And why didn't we think about putting it together? And um, and so what the University of Wisconsin Press has done is found a way to make an old classic new again. And um, Jim Leary has written a new introduction, putting Franz Rickeby in context with um, the history of American folklore and the upper Midwest in particular. Then my biography or my quest to find my grandfather, and then the actual reprinting of Franz Rickaby's book. And then the fourth section is, in fact, um, again, put together by Jim Leary, Songs that Franz Erkeby found that did not make their way into the book uh, with some information about the meaning and the importance of those songs. And so what the University of Wisconsin Press has done is, in a sense, use three different voices to tell one story of a very interesting time in American history um, with as I said, three different voices, three different perspectives um, on one very interesting guy.
0: Wow, that is amazing that they had just acquired the rights to um, ballads and songs of the Shanty Boy, just as you were doing your own research and contacting Jim Leary, who is himself an expert in the music of the upper Midwest
1: Well, uh, coincidences are wonderful things, right? Not always to be understood. (laughs) Um, But I think it turned out nicely because uh, I am not a folklorist. I am not an academic. So my section is rather informal, um, rather chatty. Jim Leary is a very accessible writer. So his Introduction, I think, um, works nicely, whether or not one is a formal folklorist or not. And then, as I said, uh, Franz Rickeby's book itself um, is fascinating. And what's been rather satisfying to me is people who did not think they would be interested in either folklore or lumberjacks and finding this book um, actually pretty compelling because of uh, the slice of life it gives, again, in these three different ways.
0: Right. Absolutely. And I think altogether, it's an incredibly complete work. It's wonderful. Um, So you had started to research and write about your grandfather before you came across Jim Leary and the world of of folklore scholarship um, per se. Um, And I wonder how you got started on that you said you'd stop working in government and nonprofit areas what what had you long planned to do research on into
1: your grandfather? no in or- fact um <laughs> i was I was actually beginning to write about North Dakota. Um, I sometimes get irritated by how parochial New Yorkers can be and uh, maybe in a perverse way, I thought it would be fun to try to dig into uh, North Dakota, its history and its importance. And so my focus was actually on the state of North Dakota, the university. And I was working with a wonderful writing coach, uh, a man named Bill Zinzer, which some of your writers might know because uh, your your listeners might know, because he wrote a wonderful book called On Writing Well. Oh uh, yeah, I've got it on my bookshelf. It's a wonderful book. Oh well Bill Zinzer, when I when I became a writer in residence, uh, I had I tracked him down. I had taken a course with him years before. And uh I read that Bill Zinzer had just won a national award for his blog. And I thought to myself, Golly, how old is Bill Zinzer? So I tracked him down and he remembered me and in the course of our conversation he told me that he had become blind and he was no longer teaching and no longer writing, um, but that what he was doing was meeting with individuals working on interesting projects and what I like to become of one of his students. And I jumped at that. And for the next two and a half years, I met with Bill Zinzer oh, every four or six weeks. And it was Bill Zinzer as I was working about North Dakota. When he heard about my grandfather, he said, Gretchen, you're missing the story. The story is your grandfather. That is a classic American story. Tell me more about him. And so in a funny way, it's the richness of my grandmother's big brown trunk that had all of this valuable information about and by Franz Rickaby and Bill Zinzer urging me to dig deeper. And then it was Bill Zinzer who said, hit the road, Gretchen, there's nothing like going to the places to get to know somebody. So I began to make these trips into the upper Midwest, calling Bill Zinser from the road and saying what I was discovering. So this is really um, a great example of collaboration and inspiration from people coming at this from different directions. Bill Zinzer, a wonderful writer, Jim Leary, a folklorist, and the University of Wisconsin being an inventive uh, publisher.
0: This is one and again, another serendipity and you contacting um, Bill Zinzer in this way. Um, so just just rewinding a little bit, now why was it why was North Dakota your, your initial area of interest?
1: Uh, my grand, uh, my father was born in Grand Forks. My um, grandfather taught there until the weather drove him to California. And two years later, he died in Claremont, California. Um, but so my father's roots were in North Dakota. And although he didn't talk about that very much, because I think his memories were vague, um, it interested me. I had visited when I was 10. Um, And again, New Yorkers have a way of putting down folks in the Midwest. And I remember my father telling me that uh, American history is filled with interesting people who headed west um, and were the entrepreneurs of American history. And so, uh, I don't know, it just interested me. Maybe part of it was... um, yeah, I just I didn't know much about it, but it it intrigued me and uh I was impatient with New Yorkers who put the Midwest down. Uh yes, I was I was struck by your comment when
0: you said um you were you you were exasperated by the parochialism of New Yorkers. Uh, for somebody who's not that familiar with uh New York City, uh, certainly never been resident there, can you tell me a little bit about how that manifests?
1: Oh, I, well, I mean you hear about um Uh, Sort of, it's it's the idea that New Yorkers think that they are the be all and the end all of American culture. And um, I am a New Yorker. I've I've lived in the city for 45 years. I was born in New York, so I can say this lovingly as a diehard New Yorker. We can in fact forget that there is the rest of the country that is filled with. an interesting and compelling history that in many ways shaped our history. Um, So, uh, Rachel, for instance, I'm now working on a series of profiles of interesting municipal leaders at the turn of the 20th century from around the country. And uh, it's striking to me, again, how many of them came from cities and towns outside of the coasts. And so it's just it's just an it, it's I'm a traveler by nature and getting to know America, I think, is ex- essential for those of us who are Americans who think we are well-traveled. It sounds like you are your grandfather's granddaughter. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we, are, we both certainly are restless at heart, as was my own father. And so that was one of the uh, unexpected, interesting things that came out of my quest to find him, is that I, in some ways, uh, discovered a piece of myself. Right. So you, said, you mentioned that, that your um,
0: research was in part um, aided by a massive trunk that your grandmother in which your grandmother had gathered material pertaining to your grandfather. Can you tell us a little bit about this trunk?
1: Well, yes. I mean, uh, my grandmother was not a sentimentalist, but she was extremely well organized. And I think that Franz Rickeby, she, ad- uh, she adored him and they had a very, very close, good marriage. And Likewise, she loved Clarence Dykstra, her second husband, who lived for many years. But she, I think, always wanted to keep Franz Rickaby's memory alive. So in her brown trunk that she'd left upon her death were many, many letters that she had written to her own mother during her marriage to Franz Rickaby. There were um snippets of his journals, which had not been published before. There were many photographs um, that hadn't been seen before. Um, There were songs that he had written. There were yearbooks that he had edited. There were newspapers that he had been in. All of this um, began to build a portrait of somebody who, as Jim Leary will say, because Franz Rickeby died so young, um, he left behind, and the book, by the way, was published posthumously six months after he died. Um, very little has been known about Franz Rickeby, um, and yet he's often cited as one of the iconic Uh, folk song collectors, but nothing was known about him. And I think that's what Jim was responding to, is that I was sitting on material that would in fact broaden and deepen a profile of somebody who uh, history had lost.
0: Right. And um, you have called, tell us what
1: you've called your biography of your grandfather. Finding Frenzy. Um, frenzy was the nickname that my grandmother gave him because he was incapable of slowing down or relaxing, not in a, not in a a nervous way, but in a restless, curious way. And so she called him frenzy. So my part of the book is finding frenzy. Right. Um, So tell me a little bit more about how your
0: research progressed. You had this, um, this trunk of material, which sounds like a real treasure trove. What happened when you were doing these um, journeys to the Midwest?
1: Well, the, the, my first one was to the University of North Dakota in Grand Forks. Um, and there, speaking of coincidences, you'll, you'll like this one. Um, I had called ahead to the university and said that I was interested in Franz Rickeby and could they pull files that they had when he um, was in fact a professor at the university. And I got there and they had very kindly pulled boxes of his classwork. He had been head of um, uh, the Dakota Playmakers, the amateur theater group. Um, So there was lots of materials. And the archivist said to me, when I introduced myself, thanked him for pulling the files, he said, you know, a funny thing happened last weekend. He said, my wife and I went to St. Paul to hear music. And that's, I'm going to guess that's maybe a four or five hour drive from North Dakota to St. Paul, Minnesota. And he said, we went to hear a young, singer who specializes in American folk songs and Irish folk songs in particular. And before he this young singer named Brian Miller began to perform, he asked if there was anybody in the audience from North Dakota. And the archivist put up his hand and said, yes, I'm from the university. And he said... Um, well, good, because I'm going to sing tonight songs that were collected by one of my favorite song collectors, a guy named Franz Rickaby. And with that, Brian Miller began to sing many of the songs that Franz Rickaby collected. Um, And that was just a week before I appeared at the University of North Dakota. So that librarian introduced me to Brian Miller who he and I have now been in touch. The University of Wisconsin has released his CD on these songs, and he himself is writing a book by, about one of Franz Rickeby's, um major informants, um, a song s- singer himself. So, again, it all becomes um, part of a whole So, I don't want to make it sound like my, my, I'm not, again, I'm not an academic. So, my research did not follow any formal route. It was more a question of serendipity. And then, when I got, um, uh, when I went back and visited these various towns, I would go to their historic societies and look for, Papers, mentions of Franz Rickaby. I figured out when he appeared in each of those towns. I tried to piece together what he might have seen when he arrived in those towns. Um, And so, again, what I've written is not so much a biography, but a story of my my visits to where he had been trying to uh, reconstruct his steps. So tell me some of the things that you
0: found out about your grandfather in that process.
1: Well, uh, I mean, in not any particular order. There is a little town called Ladysmith, Wisconsin, and my grandfather was there for maybe just one or two days. But I was able to find out by reading their local newspapers that when he was there, um, that local newspaper ran a big article about the coming of the radio. And that coincided with a mentioning in one of my grandmother's letters about the fact that the University of North Dakota was working hard to, have, to set up a radio station. And that my grandfather, Franz Rickeby, was worried about the coming of radio because he knew that commercial radio would, in fact, further bury the songs of the Lumberjacks. So, again, that was sort of piecing it all together, that his mentioning of the radio in a journal, my grandmother talking about the coming of the radio station to Grand Forks, and then knowing that he would have seen this newspaper in Lady Smith, Wisconsin, all became part of the story about why my grandfather felt such an urgency to find these songs. He knew they were disappearing and he knew they were disappearing, not just because the lumber industry was moving, but because the life of the lumberjack was changing. They were no longer isolated folks who looked for adventure and then moved from lumber camp to lumber camp. It was more mechanized. It was more industrial and radio was entertaining them. They didn't need one another. So that's an example um, of how it, how a mention he had made came home to me in a tiny town called Lady Smith, Wisconsin. But likewise, when I was in, um, uh, Stillwater, Minnesota. One of his major informants, he had mentioned he had met him in a little town outside of Stillwater. So I tried to f- track down where this man would have lived and discovered a whole thing about, um, homes for the indigent in the Midwest at that time. And I visited one of them, saw the old graveyard and in, in behind one of these poor houses. And so again, that brought to life for me what my grandfather would have seen in 1919, 1920, 1921. And although his informant turned out not to have been living in that poor house, um, it again just deepened uh for me the understanding of what Franz Rickaby would have seen wonderful so um did what actual period was
0: he doing his song collecting in and and in what kind of state was the lumber industry at that time?
1: The lumber industry began obviously in New England, up in maine and northern upstate new york and but By the 1870s, it had shifted to the upper Midwest, which was totally covered in white pine forests. And when I refer to the upper Midwest, I'm really talking about Michigan, Wisconsin and Minnesota. And for instance, in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, which is um, a famous valley, it is estimated that there were 41 billion linear feet of white pine forests. And so by the time that Abraham Lincoln approved the building of the railroad across America and you began to see Western expansion, they needed more and more lumber. And so the industry was, to- was pulled farther to the Midwest. And there they found this unbelievable wealth of white pine forest. So from 1870 to 1900, the lumber industry really dominated the upper Midwest and in many ways made some of the great American fortunes that we still know of today. Um, Kimberly Clark, Cornell, they all were they all came from the lumber industry, Weyerhauser. Um and so but by 1900, they had stripped the forests. Um, when you think about it, the railroads not only needed wooden ties to go across the continent, but with it came settlers who needed to build houses and barns and stores. So there was this endless need for wood, and by 1900, the thick lumber farce of the upper Midwest um, had been in many ways depleted, and the industry had begun to shift to the pacific northwest and So when Rickaby took his first walk in nineteen nineteen again going from upper Mich- uh, from Michigan northern Michigan back to Grand Forks up through Upper Michigan, into Wisconsin, across Minnesota, into North Dakota. He discovered that the lumber camps were small, were um, not very active. He only, in fact, picked up two songs. Um, He realized at the end, when he got back in September of 1919, that there were this, this these incredibly interesting, powerful songs, but that you couldn't find them by thinking you would find the lumber camps. And so his strategy shifted. And for the next four years, he went looking for the old timers. He went looking for the lumberjacks that were still living in the upper Midwest, but were in fact no longer lumberjacks. So for instance, um, In Virginia, Minnesota, which is up in the Mesabi Iron Range, um, Brian Miller, that young singer from St. Paul, he's working on a book, about one of Rickaby's informants. He was a night watchman at a mining company when Rickaby met him. He had been a lumberjack for years. He had been, in fact, um, somebody who moved from lumber camp to lumber camp. But now as an older man, he was a night watchman in a tough edged mining town. Um, So uh, in terms of collecting, Rickaby had to change his strategy but another thing that um, differentiates Rickabee from other folk collectors at that time was he himself was a musician. He played the fiddle, and so when he took these trips, he took his violin with him and he would book himself into a teacher's college or a civic center. He would place an article in the local paper saying that this professor they took to calling him the wandering minstrel of the upper Midwest. He would book himself into one of these places and he would give a lecture about the lumberjacks. And he would illustrate the lecture by playing some of the songs that he had learned. And by playing those songs, he primed the pump he would then say to his audience, does anybody remember any of these songs? Did any Do any of you remember hearing um, these songs either because you yourself sang them or because your father knew them? And so that's how he began to collect them. And so in my travels, I wanted to see where he had gone. Where did he meet these people? Where did he perform? Where did he find them? Um, so many of the early song catchers were... Uh quite wealthy,
0: um, and had access to uh, means of funding their travels in some way. How did, how did your grandfather fund his research?
1: Uh, <laughs> well, he was certainly not a rich man. In fact, there's lots in the journals about, um, how poorly he paid, he was paid at the university. Um, he, For the first year of his travels, um, after he got back from that first summer walk, the University of North Dakota saw that um, Rickaby going out to these small towns could, in fact, raise the profile of the university. And at that time, it was known as as, as the University of the Prairies. And there weren't that many high school graduates in North Dakota. And those that were there, many of them would go back to their farms and their families didn't necessarily see the value of higher education, let alone a liberal arts education. So the university for the first year, um, that's the academic year of 19, I guess it'd be 1919, 1920, actually paid Rickaby to go out into the field and give these lectures, um, the, for the next three years, um, Rickaby would, as I said, book himself in, and the, the teacher's college or the civic center would pay him or they would split the ticket price. And that's how he paid for these trips. And do you get any sense of what kind of relationships he built with the people that
0: he was collecting from?
1: Well, I think that the most wonderful relationship was a guy named William Bartlett um, from Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And William Bartlett um, was himself not a lumberjack. He was a businessman in Eau Claire who had a deep, Passionate interest in the lumber industry, and was in the process of putting together the most extraordinarily comprehensive collection of information about the lumber industry in Wisconsin. And um, Franz Rickaby was introduced to William Bartlett, and they met. They became fast friends, and Bartlett introduced him to some of the old lumberjacks, including a guy who called himself Shanty Boy, um, a guy named William Allen, who was one of the great lumberjack singers. Um, so it was all a question of networking, um, which, by the way, is also sort of um, parallel with my quest. What Rickaby was doing was through old-fashioned mail was writing letters to people who he heard about, hoping they would introduce him to other people, writing letters to what they called old-timers' reunions, inviting himself to their reunions, writing letters to the local chambers of commerce, asking if they would invite him to town. He was an endlessly busy uh, correspondent. And through that, he found his informants, but then also through his own performances. So um, it was a, a sort of a answer to your earlier question, Rachel. He had to support this on his own dime, and he had to find um, his own informants, since they were no longer the lumber camps, were going to be as pregnant with possibility, so he was the um, uh, sort of a classic networker without the advantage of telephones or the internet or plane travel or rental cars mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: and um did he did he give any indication in his in the material that he left about his own reaction to Um, the environment that I think had been somewhat depleted by the the, the lumber industry.
1: Yes. I mean, uh, he was a man also motivated by a deep uh, spirituality. He had been a religious guy earlier in his life and I think became discouraged with the conservatism of more formal church hierarchy. But he never lost um, an extraordinary commitment to matters of the spirit. And for him, for Franz Rickeby, it was really nature and it was really the outdoors. And so here he was um, compelled to find the stories of these brave, courageous and restless young men who were in many ways uh, driving the progress and the development of America, and in the doing of that, depleting these gorgeous, majestic forests. And so in his non-judgmental way, Franz Ruckabee does make mention of the destruction they left behind, but, but without ever criticizing the lumberjack's who were causing that destruction Um, in part, because I think he was so admiring of the courage and the talent it took to be one of these lumberjacks who would work all winter long in isolated conditions. Um, And so some of the photographs that uh, you you will see in my book uh, show those depleted forests. Um, He makes mention of them. And then uh, at one point, he actually, in Cloquette, Minnesota, falls into a town that had been destroyed the summer before by a huge fire. And they had quickly rebuilt um, one of the mills in town. And there, Rickaby got his first look at a mechanized lumber mill. And his note there is very powerful about... Um, how individuals were no longer heaving the huge, massive tree trunks, but they were being thrown around um, like toothpicks by these big machines. So he was able to see what was happening to the industry. He was able to see the destruction that was brought to the upper Midwest. Um, But his North Star was the lives that these people had led. And by the way, Rachel, uh, that's something else that I benefited from, from getting out on the, on the road, if it were. We are now talking about some of the richest farmland in America. So if you go to these places in Wisconsin or Minnesota, you will see extraordinarily um, prosperous farms. And that is in large part because the Forests, after they were depleted, the stumps would be pulled out, and the land was incredibly fertile. And so you you get this sense of, in a relatively short amount of time, how we changed the face of the earth and turned it into something quite extraordinary.
0: Right Um, now, you traveled, I imagine, by plane and train and automobile, as they say. But he, I, I, what I'm understanding is that your grandfather traveled. Was it largely
1: on foot or entirely on foot? It Seems quite incredible. His first his first walk was about nine hundred and fifty miles, of which he walked just under two hundred of them. He would hitchhike. He would he would jump on trains. His future travels. Um, Grand Forks had a branch rail line, so he would catch a branch rail line, go. Um, into Minneapolis, catch another branch rail line, go to a small town, um, walk in that small town, find the place that had invited him. So it was a combination of trains and walking. Um, and again, when I was in Virginia, Minnesota, I, 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 w- I went to find the house um, or the inn where his informant lived and was able to see how far it was from the train station and what it would have meant for Franz Rickeby to make that um, hike um, with his fiddle and his backpack on his back. So it was a combination of uh, rail and foot. Mm -hmm.
0: And am I right in understanding that even when he started on this
1: research, he wasn't a well man? Well, that of course, in some ways, is the most poignant part of my discovery he um When he was a student at Knox College and he had to earn his way through Knox College, that's when Lillian, his wife, called him frenzy because he not only took a full course load and did all of these extracurricular activities and um worked slinging hash at a local restaurant. He came down with rheumatic fever and um, that does damage to your heart. And before the days of antibiotics or surgery, uh, Franz Rickeby was living with rheumatic fever. And when he was at Harvard in 1917 and America joined the First World War, He wrote Lillian that he wanted to be a member of the Ambulance Corps, that that was a good way for an adventurer to participate in the war and be helpful without fighting. Um, But the doctors turned him down. And at that time, the doctors definitively confirmed the diagnosis, that he had done damage to his heart, and they would not allow him to join the Ambulance Corps. And that's when he and Lillian then moved to the University of North Dakota. So, yes, um, rheumatic fever doesn't, as I understand it, doesn't follow one set course. It comes and goes and has different manifestations. Some people get the shakes. Some people get terrific headaches. um, Some people's joints hurt. And for Rickaby, it was a combination of terrible headaches and Um, crippling joint pain. So some of these walks were done in real discomfort. Um, And in fact, I think it was in 1922, he went to Rochester, Minnesota for two or three months to rest. Uh, The rheumatic fever was so bad. That's what drove them to move to California in 1923. So yes, he, he, he walked both. He was not healthy as he walked. He was a musician. He was obsessed. And he had this, I think, um, I, th- I happen to think and I make the point that um, there was a psychological and emotional uh, recognition in the way the life of the lumberjack was being lost and his own sense of perhaps losing his own life. He, he died when he was just 35.
0: Right. Um, makes the achievement all the more incredible. Um, and so, he, as you say, he the book was published posthumously. And I gather that um, the publication was taken forward uh, to completion by uh, George Lyman Kittredge, whom he had met when he was at Harvard, is that right, but not actually
1: taken a course with? Yeah, he never took a course with him. Um, again, I tried to figure out how he might have, Known about that, and my only connection is, and this is pure speculation is that there is American folklorist named Henry Belden who fr- was from Missouri, who, as I understand, had collected and published some Missouri folk songs in the early nineteen hundreds He was a graduate student at Harvard the same year Franz Rickaby was, and both of them being midwesterners um, it wouldn 't surprise me if they met, and Henry Belden was, in fact a student of Kittredge's. So um, when Rickaby became interested in these lumberjack songs, he began to correspond with Kittredge. And um, Kittredge, in fact, sent him some leads, sent him some uh, reflections on uh, Child's, Francis Child's famous book. And so after Rickaby died, um, Lillian, his wife, was very scared that the book would never see the light of day. And she wrote Kittredge about Rickaby Dine and asked whether or not Kittredge would make sure that it was published, because Kittredge had already accepted it. And Kittredge wrote back and said, not to worry, I will shepherd it through the process. And that's what happened. And in fact, um, Harvard has the original manuscript and you can see some of the notes that Kittredge made in the margins. Um, there weren't that many. He, he changed a few of the titles of the photographs. Um, but other than that, yes, Kittredge um, made sure that it was published. Oh, that's a, another
0: wonderful resource. Um, and um, just for listeners who aren't familiar with Kittredge, he was a very significant folklorist in his own right, and from the uh, uh, studied directly with Francis Child of the famous Child Ballad. So um, there's an interesting lineage going on there. Um,
1: Rachel, could I just throw in something so, there? Because again, as, absolutely, go uh, uh, as again, something that I learned as a as um, somebody who wasn't read in this field is that I didn't realize that until Kittredge, people hadn't thought about going to the field and collecting these songs. They had done it from desks, like Francis Childs had. And it was Kittredge who, and by the way, Kittredge inherited Childs' seat at Harvard. He was both his student and then his successor. It was, it was Kittredge who first said to some of his students, go to the field. Your job is to find these ballads because they are still alive. They're changing, they're evolving, and they are still alive. And it was, in fact, um, Kittredge who set, um, and many people say, he was really the father of the modern American folk. Collecting tradition. Um, and so I just put that in context.
0: No, that's very valuable because he sounds like the, an ideal collaborator for um, your grandfather. Um, uh, in the process of, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the actual book in a moment, but in the process of doing all this research, what sense did you gain of your grandfather as a person? Um, just some of the things that stood out for you.
1: Well, I, I I think again, and this goes to Jim Leary, and I give him credit. Is that um, I realized that a, a, a basically what began to pull my research together was trying to understand what motivated Franz Rickaby, trying to understand what drove him. And by focusing on that, I think I began to understand him as a person. And so I I have already cited the fact that he was a poet at heart. Um, He was definitely a musician. His father was an itinerant organist and piano teacher. Um, He was uh, an academic who had a lot of respect for academic scholarship. Um, He was uh somebody who who liked people and was gregarious he was f- f- endlessly curious and restless and so um in fact i came across that he was before they moved to california he was thinking about um taking a break from teaching and seeing if he could write a commercial play. He had written four or five one-act plays that were published by Baker in Boston, and he was playing with the idea of maybe writing a commercial play. So my grandfather was imaginative, he was entrepreneurial, he was energetic, but more importantly, I think he was a spiritual man who cared deeply about real stories. Um, and you couple that with his love of music. And, um, I think I got a pretty good sense of him. He had a very nice, um, sense of humor. He was a kind man. I came across letters, um, that he had written back to my father postcards when my father was just a little boy that were illustrated. He made up characters when he was at the sanatorium in Rochester, Um, His plays were lighthearted. He was a kind and gentle man. um, And I think it was a tragedy that he died so young, not just because I never got to know him, but as Carl Sandburg said, um, we've lost a real artist. He had a a way of capturing um, the lives of people that you don't come across very often.
0: Yes. I mean, I was really struck in reading your biography of him. He just sounded like a wonderful man. I noticed he was also a golf caddy as well (laughs) and recruited girls as caddies, which was a revolution.
1: And uh, that's very funny because today, of course, I mean, golf at that time, too, was a sport of the rich. And um, in northern Michigan, Uh, the rich from Chicago and Detroit and even as far south as St. Louis began to move their families to these resorts along Lake Michigan. And the Chicago Club um, built one. And my grandfather was introduced and to the guy who was going to run the golf course at the Chicago club resort for its members. And they said, you need an older, settled, more mature man to run the golf caddies. And so they hired my grandfather who always had enjoyed hanging out with young kids. Um, and so he did that for seven summers. Um, was not himself a golfer, but became a mentor to as many as 125 kids who worked on the golf course, including, as you alluded to, um, in 19... Seventeen, I guess, or nineteen eighteen, he recruited young girls to be golf caddies, much to the shock of all of the players. It's wonderful.
0: I, I, I was. I noticed uh, that after his death, the school that he was working at at the time in California. I don't know if this was something that common that happened then, but they cancelled all classes so that everyone in the college could attend his funeral. So he must have made a huge
1: impression. Um, he was. He 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 went to Pomona. And Pomona is one of the Claremont Colleges um, uh, and was established again by a Midwesterner who had a vision of establishing a set of colleges that would share resources like their library and their gym, but would have a different gestalt at each campus, and Pomona was the liberal arts one. And um, Rickaby got there, uh, as I said, he went in large reason because of health, and threw himself into his teaching at Pomona. Um, I came across in in the student newspaper, one day there were four different articles that mentioned Franz Rickaby on the front page of the student newspaper about various activities that he was involved with, either as a teacher or a mentor. So I think that his energy and his commitment to students was felt very quickly. And so, yes, when he died, um, they not only closed the college, Knox College also uh, had a day of mourning. Oh, um, right. Yeah, I think he was. Uh, and in fact, when I went to Claremont, um, I don't, I can't remember if I say this, they put a, a memorial sundial in, um, one of the open yards at Pomona and dedicated it to Franz Rickeby. And I had never seen that sundial before. And when I got there, it was cracked. The, the stone had cracked. And so I wrote a note to the then president at Pomona College saying that, um, I was so touched that the college had honored my grandfather in that way, that perhaps the president didn't know that Franz Rickeby had only taught there for two years, but that the sundial was cracked and that I would be happy to pay to have it um, uh, refurbished. And he wrote me a very nice note back, thanked me for alerting him to that, and the college has since fixed the sundial.
0: I was also struck by uh, the comment of a friend of his after his death. He said he calls uh Rickaby, uh a. Uh- a young troubadour who might have been a statesman in the United States art had he lived. His outstanding characteristics were an untiring industry, a determined disposition, a keen sense of humor, an optimism that never failed him, and a friend-making ability that was far out of the
1: ordinary. It seems like a lovely thing to be have said about one. I think that was Fachel Lindsay, wasn't it, who said that? Who yeah, Fachel- that's right. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, when... I didn't mention this, by the way. Um, When Rickaby was in high school in Springfield, Illinois, he was born in, in Rogers, Arkansas, but his family moved around a lot and they ended up in Springfield, Illinois. And when Rickaby was 16... He was bored in school, and he went to his father and said that he was going to drop out and return to Rogers, and he did that for two and a half years. He supported himself in odd jobs in the Apple industry playing his violin and was gone for two and a half years, and when he returned to Springfield, he went back to high school. So he was always about two and a half years older than his classmates, and when he was in finishing up high school in Springfield, Illinois, the famous poet, Vachel Lindsay, who was himself from Springfield, came back to town um, from his adventures in the East. And he and Franz became fast friends. And in some ways, Vachel Lindsay's, he, he was known as the American troubadour. He wrote these wonderful um, poems of great rhythm and musicality. And, um, I think that Franz Rickeby at that time understood that you could be a poet, you could be a musician, you could be a wanderer, and you could still be a serious person. So um, I would also cite Vachel Lindsay's um, influence on Franz Rickeby's future uh, folk song collecting. Um, Yes, no, absolutely.
0: Um, So uh, we have talked about his... Uh, all the work you've done uh, in the book at, at some length. And, and we should just briefly mention the next two sections. So part two, as you mentioned earlier, is is actually uh, Franz Rickaby's kind of masterwork, this collection of ballads and songs of uh, the Shanty Boy, um, which was very unusual in many ways for a, a collection of, of folk material because... It included information about the context in which he gathered the material. It included um, his own notes on the, on the ballads, uh, who he learned these things from, as well as some photographs. So it was quite revolutionary in some ways, I think. And, and he was definitely interested in the book reaching the mainstream, wasn't he?
1: He was, and in fact, um, uh, the, I gather that John Lomax – did his work, I think, around 1912. And then he he sort of disappeared for a while. I gather he had to earn a living and to raise his family. And when John Lomax reappeared on the folk song scene in 1930, I read somewhere that there had only been about nine or ten books published in those the years between 1912 and 1930, Franz Ruckabee's being one of them. And in addition to... Um, what you just cited were were his, his notes on the culture of the Lumberjacks is, again, because Rickaby was a musician, he also was able to transcribe not only the lyrics, but the music. And so it was the only book during those years, during the 20s, that was published with the music as well as the lyrics. And I think that Jim Leary would say that it's too bad he didn't record them. He couldn't have carried those big wax recorders. He couldn't have um, physically carried them. But wasn't it it good that we had the music, at least?
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's a really important point. Are there any of the um, songs that he collected that particularly stand
1: out for you? Well, I think that in part because of Brian Miller's wonderful renditions of them, um, I think think that what stands out for me are the ones that tell the most vivid stories um, like uh, Jimmy Phelan who died in um, as running some of the logs um, I certainly like Jack Haggerty's Flat River girl um, I I like the shanty boy and the farmer's son, not so much for the music, but for Rickaby's notes, because there he addresses what was thought to be a competition between lumberjacks and farmers. Um, And in his notes, there's sort of a wonderfully insightful sociological thing about how the lumberjacks were sort of envious of the farmer's solidity and the farmer's somewhat envious of the lumberjacks' um, fluidity. So um, I like the songs for different reasons. Um, Mm -hmm. Some of them are more melodic than others. Um, All of them have, I think, are telling powerful stories. Um, But again, for me, it's the notes that bring the whole world alive.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And the photographs as well, right? Yeah,
1: definitely. Definitely. Yeah.
0: And then so in part three, we have it's entitled Forgotten Songs. And, and this, here we have 14 songs which he collected, but which fell outside of the um, purview of um, ballads and songs of the Shanty Boy. Um, and um, here we have quite um, substantial annotations from Jim Leary, um, who is uh, adding to the notes that Franz
1: Rickaby made. Well, I th- and the University of Wisconsin has those songs. And so Jim uh, drew off of the library's collection and makes assumptions, not makes assumptions, he tells us about the importance of those songs, bringing his own scholarship to bear. Um, and in some, you can see why Rickaby did not include all of them, um, but they just add to the, uh, I guess, the understanding of Rickaby as a collector.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: So this is a wonderful
0: resource, um, uh, which we now is just freshly published. I think it's dated. Uh, copyright is um, this year, isn't it? Uh, or no, 2017. We've already moved into 2018. Right. Um, um, get confused about where we are in the year. But um so we've been talking for uh, quite a quite a quite a while about this. Is there anything that you would like
1: to say that I didn't give you the chance to say as we were going along? Well, Rachel, I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. And again, I just say that um, I think that for people interested in folklore. Pinery Boys does represent an interesting model for how we keep alive these songs and put them in a broader context both personal and historical and literary but it's been a real pleasure to talk to you because um for me this was it became a labor of love and um it's been a lot of fun talking about it and so hats off to you and f- for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Oh, that. no, not at, all. not at all. Thanks for talking with us.
0: This is uh, it's definitely a, uh, a book that I think will be of interest to many people. So I'm going to let you go now. But I uh, wanted to thank you very much for taking part in new books and folklore.
1: Thanks very much.